So in May of 2014, a writer by the name of Caitlin Dewey, any relation? Caitlin Dewey of the Washington Post started a, started a new column called, What Was Fake? And uh, the point of this column was to fact check uh, many of the silly or viral stories and rumors that were floating around the internet that week. So it started out as this funny thing in, in 2014. So in, in July, for instance, of that year, here's, here's some of the things she debunked. Uh, there were no pregnant tarantulas roaming South Brooklyn. That was false. Netflix uh, wasn't canceling Orange is the New Black. Uh, there, uh, there is no such thing as a fried chicken Oreo. There's no such thing. Uh, and uh, no angry fans did not burn down Le LeBron James's house. So, th so she, she would go, she would write, you know, at the end of the week, this, this little column. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, several, several years ago, social scientists and technologists, they theorized and hoped that increased communication would bring about a democratization of, of ideas, which would bring, uh, which would be a huge boon to us as people uh, to, to listen and read and to discern our ability to discern truth and facts. And then, boom, welcome, welcome to the internet. So this is great, you know, thanks to I, internet and iPhones, we have so much news and information to choose from, and the ease of content creation allows for the dissemination of ideas to be much easier. Uh, but what social scientists have now found is that actually with more choices, the more choices that people are given, uh, people are actually not likely to make uh, very rational or civic choices when it comes to the information that they consume. Go figure. We saw this play out spectacularly this past fall in election season. Uh, we saw people burrow into the deep echo chambers of uh, their own news or conspiracy theories or fake news. Uh, and you know, this goes beyond your crazy uncle on Facebook. This affects us all extremely, uh, extremely deeply. Uh, Pew Research conducted a study this past fall in which, get this, 81%, 81% of people polled said that uh, most supporters of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump not only disagree on plans and policies, but they also disagree on, quote, basic facts. 81% of people polled said that they disagreed on basic facts. So this obviously illustrates that this is a big problem. Uh, researchers have now shown uh, that two people with differing viewpoints can be shown the same picture video, document, whatever, uh, and they come away with strikingly different ideas uh, about what that picture shows. Interesting. Another study published in 2015 by research as researchers at the MIT School for Advanced Studies in Italy found that online networks help conspiracy theories persist and grow online. The study concluded, quote, this creates an ecosystem in which the truth value of the information does not matter. So after some time, this, our friend Caitlin Dewey at the Washington Post starts to get the idea that her weekly column was falling on deaf ears and she begins to notice that there's more and more fake news. So this discourages her. And it's not just of the chicken fried Oreo variety. She couldn't keep up with all this fake news. So she ends up meeting with the lead researcher that did the study in Italy, uh, that uh, MIT advanced study uh, did. And he told her this. He told her that institutional distrust is so high right now and cognitive bias is always so strong that the people who fall for hoax news stories are frequently only interested in consuming information that conforms with their views, even when it is 
demonstratively fake. So, Caitlin, that doesn't help her, her discouragement. So, um, she decides to end her column, what is fake, and in her final column, she wrote this. Social scientists have found, and perhaps this is intuitive, that the sort of readers who would unskeptically share such a far-fetched story site are exactly the readers who will not be convinced by the Washington Post debunking. Uh, to me, at least, that represents a very weird moment in internet discourse, an issue at which point does society become utterly irrational? Is this the point at which we start segmenting off into alternate realities? What is fake has had a good run, but the nature of the internet misinformation has changed. And then she signs off. That was her last, uh, her last post. So we live in such an interesting time of news, media, art, entertainment. Uh, technology really changes faster than we even know how to adapt to it. We don't know necessarily how to always best safeguard our society, understand how it affects our perceptions of reality, our interactions with each other. Um, uh, Father uh, John Colkin, he's a professor of uh, communication at Fordham in New York, uh, once wrote, we become what we behold, we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. It is especially clear that after the events of this last year, <coughs> that we'll, we won't speak about this morning, uh, we are a deeply divided nation. Uh, we disagree on basic facts, politics, principles, and the process of making decisions about the life that we all share together. Uh, we saw that 80% of, for instance, white evangelical Christians voted to cast their support of a candidate for president that many other Christians believe is the complete antithesis of the morals and values uh, taught and lived by a first century Palestinian man named Jesus. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us today, people of faith that apparently seem, hi dog, uh, apparently seem deeply divided. Uh, will we continue to burrow deeper into the echo chambers of our online news? Will we continue to, to bury down uh, and, su and support things that uh, we already believe to be, um, to be right? Or are we able to see the world through a different lens, one that allows us to exist in the reality that God has planted each of us and I believe one that our text is calling to, to live with today. So we looked last week, we started off uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, with the lectionary going through 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, and we'll pick up exactly in the lectionary where we left off last week in verse 10. We know last week from uh, uh, our intro on Corinth, this is written to a community of maybe 30 to 50 people, and they have some problems. They wrote a letter to Paul outlining a lot of their issues. They're deeply divided on almost everything. They're divided on baptism. They're divided on the Lord's Supper. They're divided on which leader to follow. And uh, it's just perfectly appropriate that we are talking about division and unity in the midst of our current context. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 18. Uh, you have it in the bulletin. It should be up here. Uh, I'm going to re be reading in the message this morning. I have a serious concern to bring up with you, my friends. Using the authority of Jesus, our master, I'll put it as urgently as I can. You must get along with each other. You must learn to be considerate of one another, cultivating a life in common. I bring this up because some from Chloe's uh, family brought a most disturbing report to my attention that you are fighting amongst yourselves. I'll tell you exactly what I was told. You're all picking sides, going around saying, I'm on Paul's side, or I'm for Apollos, or Peter is my man, or I'm in the Messiah's group. I ask you, has 
the Messiah been chopped up into little pieces so that we can all have a relic of our own? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Was a single one of you baptized in Paul's name? I was not involved in any of your baptism, uh, well, except for Cyprus and Gaius uh, on getting this report. I'm sure I'm glad I wasn't. At least no, no one can go around saying that he was baptized by me. But come to think of it, I also baptized Stephanaeus, Stephanaeus's family. But as far as I can recall, that's it. God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself, but to preach the message of what he has done, <coughs> collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric of my own, lest the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross, be trivialized into mere words. The message that points to Christ on the cross seems like sheer silliness to those hell-bent on destruction, but for those on the way of salvation, it makes perfect sense. So once again, we find Paul using pretty frank language. I love in this passage where he's like, uh, I only baptized two of you. Well, come to think of it, I baptized Stephanaeus' family too, but that's it. Yeah, so, uh, it, so I think sometimes when we read Paul, we think he's this, you know, <laughs> he's sort of like superhuman author and that these don't really seem like letters a lot of times. And this really is a moment where I feel like this seems like he was uh, writing a letter. So he uses frank language to get to the point, urgently making this point to them. Uh, that this community is clearly focused on, on taking sides. Again, they're deeply divided. And then he obviously gets another letter. So the community sends Paul a letter basically outlining a lot of their problems. And then he says, well, I got actually uh, another letter from Chloe's family that says you got even more issues than what you're telling me. So this is a community deeply, deeply disturbed. Uh, so in verse 1, he, he makes his appeal. He says, using the authority of Jesus... You must get along with each other. You must learn to be considerate of one another, cultivating a life in common. And here, Paul isn't simply playing peacemaker in order to avoid conflict or uh, saying that everybody should just be friends in kind of an abstract way. But he knows, like he said last week, he's communicating to an incredibly diverse people. It's really only 30, but we have uh, Jewish and Greek people, rich and poor, uh, probably slave and free, male and female. Uh, and he's not asking them to give up their... Ooh, the blustery winds blew open the front door. Uh, he's not asking them to give up their, their diversity or their individuality here. Uh, he says, <laughs> the NRSV in verse 10 uh, says, be united in the same mind and purpose. Uh, Paul understands that the gospel message, at its core, the gospel message creates unity. Unity is at the heart of the gospel. So if you don't remember anything that I say this morning, remember that. Unity is at the heart of the gospel. Uh, this isn't just an abstract form of everybody should just sing kumbaya and get along. The gospel creates unity through equal participation in the life and death of Jesus so that no one can claim superiority or advantage over anyone else in the community. So the cross reigns supreme over. It's an entirely different way for the, for the Corinthian community and hopefully for us to see ourselves uh, in, in this message of the gospel. Um, so I don't, think, I don't think Paul's message could be more appropriate for today's church in the big sense uh, and for our church, be united. Because as we've talked about, it's easy, it's really easy to be divided. Uh, the, the science shows us that the, the division is the easy road. We can easily fall into that trap. Just justify your beliefs, read your news, read your Breitbart, read your Occupy Democrats, ignore the crazies on the left or the right, uh, live your life isolated. That's easy, fractured, knowing you're right, of course. Uh, but this is the trap that the church community has fallen into in Corinth, 
It's the trap that we can easily uh, fall into today. Focus on your particularities. Distract yourself. It's easy to live in a bubble. So let's not be bubble people, okay? Bubble people. That should be the title of the sermon, bubble people. Julie, mark that down, bubble people. Uh, (laughs) And if anyone's going to break this cycle, uh, we have to get outside of ourselves. Uh, And Paul tells us uh, how to do that. Uh, But he says at the end that the way we get outside of ourselves seems ridiculous. So um, how do we define power and success? Uh, This week, actually, Oxfam released uh, their annual reports that uh, showed that eight men, did anybody see this? Eight eight men have uh, controlled the same amount of wealth as the uh, 3.6 billion people uh, that are in the bottom half of the world's population. Uh, This is is reality. This is the economy of the world. that seeks to even divide us economically between, between rich and the poor. Uh, but Paul says something fascinating in verse 18 that I think has not only the power to transform us personally, but impacts um, our entire being within the world. In verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God rests in the, su- the suffering God. It rests in the cross of Jesus. This is why it doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, we were actually talking on Wednesday night at Bible study um, about suffering and the problem of evil, and what struck me during that conversation uh, was, through everyone's story, was the realization that Jesus really suffers alongside of us. Uh, God isn't a distant being, but is intimately and mysteriously present in the midst of our personal suffering, of our collective suffering. Uh, this, doesn't, this doesn't explain suffering or, or justify it in some way, but it, it illustrates God's movement and unity within each of us. This is what unites us. Uh, the cross is, like Paul said, it's foolishness. Uh, how can someone being executed have any power? If the power of God is the cross, how can, how can someone being executed have any power? It is the very instrument of torture used by the powerful. Right? The cross is a horrific illustration of powerlessness. The cross represents the most exposed, powerless, and vulnerable that any person could be. So what in the world is Paul talking about? Paul moves us back towards the cross, back towards the oppressed, back towards those who are suffering, and back towards uh, the joy uh, when we are free from the divisions, from all the little petty stuff that, that divides us. It is the cross that, that unites us. Um, the vulnerable needs of others uh, is what Jesus brings us to. It is from, it's from walking in uh, the lectionary text in Isaiah this morning says, it's, it's, it's from the walking in the gloom that we find a great light. For Paul, it is Jesus, Jesus' undeserved capital punishment that has the power to transform a broken and fractionalized little church into a community that has a transformative purpose in the world. If we are to be united today as Christians and um, capital C church or just even our church here, we must understand that we are living in this tension, this tension and freedom of the radical death and resurrection of Jesus on a cross. This is the gospel. Uh, on September 15th, 1963, um, some white racists bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama and it killed four young African-American girls who were attending Sunday school. And and Martin Luther King wrote a eulogy at that funeral and said, history has proven over and over again that unmerited suffering is redemptive. Innocent blood of these little girls may well serve as the redemptive force that will bring a new light into this dark city. These tragic deaths 
may lead our nations to substitute an aristocracy of character for an aristocracy of color. The, the spilt blood of these innocent girls may cause the whole citizenry of Birmingham to transform the negative extremes of a dark past into the positive extremes of a bright future. Uh, you know, yesterday we saw, uh, amazingly, the entire world. Did anybody go to uh, uh, any of the marches? Yeah? Uh, you know, we saw the entire world unite together in a positive vision and hope. Um, it just shows the resilience of, uh, you know, the human spirit to stand on behalf of equality, basic human rights, the dignity and value of every person, regardless of any distinction. Uh, you know, we've read it a couple weeks ago, Acts 10, 34, Peter says, Now I understand now that God does not show any favoritism. This is the power of God in the cross. This is what unites us. This is what fuels us. This is what inspires us as Christians. Um, eight, eight people own half of the world's money. Eight people own half of the world's money. No, but they, they probably should be. Uh, eight people own half of the world's money. Great. This is not real power. It's not. Uh, that, that's not life. True power and true life lies in the midst of suffering. This is the ridiculousness of the cross. Uh, you know, we'll never get outside of our own little individual echo chambers and, or our, our silly Christian or cultural factions as long as we focus on secondary issues, who's right, who's wrong. Um, this is what the Corinthians were doing. Uh, our issues today may be a little bit different from theirs, uh, but they still function the same way. They still function to split us apart, to divide us, to just distract us even. Uh, our issues and groups that we like to huddle in, they fool us into telling us that uh, we have the power if we fit these modes of powers, if we think we're right. Um, if we support this, we're right. If we donate to this, we're right. Um, the cross focuses us instead on a subversive nature of our humanity together. It calls us to life-offering, sacrificial service. It looks rather cross-shaped, which looks rather ridiculous to most people. The gospel reading for, from our lectionary today ended like this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Jesus goes out into the suffering of the world. So may we strive today for unity in a culture of division. May we strive for unity amongst each other. May we seek the welfare of the stranger, the crazy person on Facebook, our homeless brother or sister. The cross of Christ is the power of God for unity. It's easy to live in a bubble, people. Let's not be bubble people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your uh, radical and subversive message that you are going about healing the sick, curing the disease, uh, that you call us to that self-offering love, that sacrificial service, um, and that the power of God lies in that movement, that movement that looks really different from what we see on the news or what we experience online, uh, and that we must constantly be that in the world. Uh, if anybody is going to set an example, um, I hope it's us, I hope it's the followers of Jesus uh, that pave a new way of unity in a culture of division. So Lord, be present among us, may your uniting spirit uh, be embedded deep within us, 
um, so that we as a, a Mission Hills community uh, will be united here in love and, and take that out into the world. So thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just stand one more time for some worship. When my heart is so Jesus, I 